Mini episode 1453 of the FDH Lounge is brought to you by Sportsology, delivering unconventional columns and webcasts about sports, TV, music, movies, and more. Follow them on the web at sportsology.com. The FDH Lounge. You want to schedule your life around it. A long time ago, on a gloomy, wet Cleveland spring night, two men stand alone amidst the late night drizzle. Their voices echo across the vacant station parking lot as they debate the merits of the great American radio show that have been missing for far too long. On that night, an idea was born. That idea became the FDH Lounge. Welcome to the FDH Lounge. Hello everyone, welcome to FDH Lounge mini episode 1453. This is FDH managing partner Rick Morris here. And we have with us today uh, a very excellent guest we've had on many times previously on the program here. We've had him on to discuss a wide variety of uh, subject matter over a period of time. A very prominent author with books uh, about Wall Street, such as Money and Power, How Goldman Sachs Came to Rule the World, House of Cards, A Tale of Hubris and a Wretched Excess on Wall Street, The Last Tycoons, The Secret History of Lazard Frares and Company, as well as Why Wall Street Matters. Uh, another book that we had discussed on the show previously, The Price of Silence, about the Duke Lacrosse scandal. And uh, so we've, we've talked about a number of different subjects on the show with him. As I say, the Duke Lacrosse scandal, prior to that a couple of times, the global financial meltdown of 2008. Uh, about two years ago, we talked about uh, going into the, uh, the, the coronavirus pandemic, uh, what was likely to be ahead. And uh, unfortunately, I think there was a lot of very apt clip and save uh, predictions in there about how bad things were going to get. And uh, we've talked about a number of bad subjects. Uh, I don't know that there's anything worse uh, as far as the, the potential ramifications than what we're going to discuss today with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and all of the consequences that come attached to that. But we'll get his thoughts on that and much, much more. It's a pleasure to have back on the show William Cohen, great author and uh, authority on Wall Street and one of the uh, new founding partners at Puck News, uh, specifically with the Dry Powder newsletter there. Uh, William, always a pleasure to have you on the show, sir. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Always great to be here. We really appreciate it. Uh, it's always very, very informative to get to talk to you and get your perspective on things. And uh, I guess I'll just start with uh, what I was talking about there in the intro and, and this, this sense of what we have ahead. And uh, again, maybe this is a little bit of prisoner of the moment, because uh, certainly when the global financial meltdown happened in 08, we didn't know where that was going to completely shake out. So we're looking at that in retrospect. The COVID-19 pandemic was very bad, but now we sort of have it at least a, a sense of what it entailed versus looking ahead here, uh, both the magnitude of what might be uh, just civilian horrors on a widespread level in Ukraine and the possibility, which has gotten talked about in recent days here, uh, almost sort of a Cuban Missile Crisis type thing of where this might go uh, with escalation potentially uh, to, to the worst possible place. Is, is this maybe the, the worst of these moments that we've had here in the 21st century looking at this? Or is that, again, kind of prisoner of the moment to think that that might be where we're at? Well, it certainly has been uh, a rough start to the century, hasn't it? Yes. Uh, uh, you know, starting with 9-11, uh, which was right off the bat, and then the financial crisis, uh, the aftermath of that, uh, 
pandemic. Now this, you know, uh, my kids are in their twenties and I, you know, I feel badly for them that, uh, you know, what do they know uh, in their life? And it's, it's not been particularly great. Uh, it's been particularly hard. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, we never know quite where these things lead at the start. I mean, uh, you know, as a, as a point of reference, I mean, uh, you know, I was in New York uh, on 9-11, uh, uh, in Midtown Manhattan. And, uh, you know, uh, that was, uh, probably the most frightening, uh, thing that's happened to me in my uh, lifetime. Uh, you know, because at the beginning of that, of course, no one knew where that was going. Right. Relatively quickly, you know, I, you know, maybe after a week we realized sort of that, you know, it was, potentially relatively finite it led to all sorts of other things but you know it, could, it, it was seeming like it might be a lot worse and certainly in new york city it was it was pretty bad you know the pandemic was bad in new york city uh where i was the financial crisis was bad in new york city where where i was uh you know, this is uh plenty bad and threatening uh uh but obviously uh you know you know, hasn't hit our shores yet, and hopefully it won't. And of course, I think that's what makes people very nervous because, you know, any kind of confrontation that we may be gearing up for with another uh, nuclear power, uh, you know, could escalate very quickly to just like, you know, Armageddon. And so I think that's what people are nervous about now. And, you know, we're clearly dealing with a madman on the other side, uh, which is, um, makes it difficult. It really does. No question about it. And, you know, almost sort of anticipating the social media age where, where you can get variables kind of coming in. And social media, we're going to spend some time definitely talking about the aspects of this and the immediacy of the images and everything that we've been able to get from on the ground in Ukraine. But uh, what you said about 9-11, the fact that coming out of the ashes of that, and you were right, within about a week, or so. We, we knew that that was the end of at least that wave of al-Qaeda terrorism, but then that led right into the uh, uh, the whole anthrax scare that fall, and that was what sort of overhung uh, the rest of that fall there and kept people very, very uneasy. So in, in a strange kind of a way, it, it, it to me almost sort of anticipated the social media age of where I'm not going to say it was a copycat crime per se, because it wasn't the same exact crime, but it seemed to be somebody latching onto the moment and creating their own kind of terror and havoc. And in a moment like this, particularly with the ability of people to stir things up over social media, you know, you just wonder at, at a point in time like this where even if it's not Putin directly, uh, but potentially anybody working for, anybody in the service of Putin, what they might be able to do uh, to, to further just raise the temperature here, uh, you know, to their own benefit. Well, you know, uh, uh, I ran the New York City Marathon in 2001, is in November, so you know, literally two months after 9/11, and uh, I mean, yes, the acute fear had subsided, but I will tell you, standing on the Verrazano Bridge with sharpshooters uh, on top of the bridge pylons and right. helicopters flying around, I mean, there was a lot of nervous energy among the 30,000 people who were on that bridge 
wondering if something crazy might happen uh, with with that bridge. Uh, uh, fortunately, it didn't, and we just had a you know had a nice run uh, uh, that day. Uh, but you know, I think I, I've heard today that um, you know the Pentagon has opened up a channel of communication with the equivalent. Uh, organization in in Russia to make sure that uh, things, whether it be on social media or uh, any anything that might happen on the periphery of Ukraine, where the U.S. has troops uh, stationed, even though President Biden has said that we will not uh, commit troops to fighting Russia and Ukraine. You know, there's talk of a no-fly zone now, which of course you know we don't want to do that because that might bring us in direct confrontation militarily with, with, again, the Russians. And so, you know, I think, you know, there's no question that uh, we're all on uh, high alert. We're on sufficiently high alert that uh, uh, nobody is talking about uh, COVID anymore. And yet, you know, thousands of Americans are dying each day still from that. Uh, you know, again, as you said, it looks like we may be seeing light at the uh, proverbial light at the end of that tunnel, but uh what is you know it's just kind of sad that you know it takes a war uh a, a war of aggression uh by a superpower uh against a neighboring country completely unprovoked to you know sweep the pandemic off the front pages you know as it's approaching having killed you know a million americans uh you know, it's a tough way to live. It's really been a tough, uh, you know, 21-year period. It has been, no question about it. And uh, before uh, I start asking a little more about uh, present day here, I want to stay a little bit further back in time and even a little further back than what we've been talking about here uh, with this part of the 21st century and, and the dawn of it specifically uh, to the comparisons that we're getting now to the Cold War and that there were a handful of politicians uh, on the stage still, Joe Biden among them, uh, that were around during the last Cold War. And one of the things that really has sort of bemused me about this in, in, in leading up uh, until this, and at a point in time like this, I would say uh, that uh, I certainly get it as far as any of the uh, rhetoric about having to stand up to Putin and everything like that. But as somebody that was a child of the Cold War and the dying days of the Cold War, I guess specifically, and thinking back to the 80s and, and thinking back to all the stuff about Ronald Reagan and, uh, you know, oh, the nuclear cowboy, he's going to get us killed, it's World War III. When I think of issues like the Contras, the Minuteman missiles, I don't remember a lot of the Democrats that are still on the stage today I don't ever remember them talking about Andropov or Brezhnev in quite the way they talked about Putin in recent years. Now, at a point in time, yes, I mean, now Putin has gone ahead to do this, and I suppose they might say, well, we were prescient enough to, to anticipate that he would do something like this. But that, that sort of gap in rhetoric has always been uh, something that's, that's sort of bemused me in recent years here, is that uh, politicians that were not really on the same page as Ronald Reagan back in the day, taking the Reagan-esque moral clarity line towards Putin in modern times here, even before he did the full-fledged invasion of Ukraine last week. What, what do you make of this as, as far as how politicians like that sounded then and how they sound today? Well, I mean, uh, Ronald Reagan, who is, of course, you know, celebrated still uh, by 
the right by the Republican Party, by conservatives, uh, you know, was very forceful in standing up to, uh, you know, Gorbachev uh, and the Russian leaders. You know, uh, you know, Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall. Uh, I think um, the Trump years uh, sort of uh, made us uh, forget, uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, who, you know, the potential dangers and threats posed by uh, somebody like Putin, who, who I think has become, you know, more uh, more of a dictator uh, than any, uh, you know, than any of the other uh, p- previous Russian slash Soviet leaders in, in in my lifetime. Obviously, you know, Stalin, Lenin, you know, you know, aside, I don't know anything. Obviously, was not alive then, yeah, but uh, Putin is more out of that mold, and and because Trump uh, just you know, kowtowed to him because he just laid down uh, and genuflected in his general direction constantly uh, to the point where, you know, I'm still convinced that uh, Putin must have something over Trump, uh, either either financially or, or uh, you, know, you know, behaviorally, uh, that, you know, Trump cannot risk uh, doing what... Uh, he, you know, he tries to claim the mantle of Ronald Reagan. Uh, you know, Ronald Reagan would never uh, have kowtowed to Putin the way Trump did. So I, I think that as a result of those four plus years where we had to listen to that windbag, uh, and unfortunately, there's still an element in the country that uh, he appeals to. Uh, you know, we still have to listen to that putrid garbage coming out of his mouth on a regular basis, uh, although fortunately less than when he was president, you know, we have, uh, uh, you know, been, uh, I think uh, many Americans have been sort of uh, seduced into thinking that maybe Putin was our our friend, that maybe, you know, he's a great guy and we should aspire to have a country like the one he created in Russia, which of course is total BS. And, you know, I think, that sort of accommodation policy that 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 Trump engaged in for four years is probably what led him to think that uh, you know he can do what he's doing now and that there would be no consequences. And uh, uh, obviously, he is realizing that that's uh, not true. That there are major major consequences now. They're not, unfortunately, sufficient to deter him. You know, he's got six hundred billion dollars worth of currency reserves, which he's, you know, obviously spending to wage this war. And, but at some point, the economic sanctions and the other actions that are being taken uh, by individual corporations, by SWIFT, the banking, international banking consortium, are going to have an effect, but those are not, you know, immediate. And, you know, in the near term, he's just sort of plowing on with his, his, war posture and his warmongering and and you know trump likes to uh uh claim as he did last week or whatever that you know if he were still president that putin would not have done this you know he's directly responsible for putin doing this because you know he uh made people think that putin you know and he and the united states uh, were, were, were friends and that putin was uh, uh an admirable guy and so just 
it's frankly disgusting. And now we're dealing with the consequences of it. I want to hone in on what you were talking about, William, with the, the financial angle of this with Russia, because uh, I would wager, given your background and everything that you've done professionally, this is probably the area of the crisis that you're probably most acquainted with, and, and certainly far more so than anybody in our audience. What you mentioned there about SWIFT and some of the ramifications uh, of that, uh, other things beyond that, that, that the, the, the total effect of not just the sanctions, but Switzerland coming in off the sidelines, which, again, we're, we're in a remarkably different world before and after with all the different things that have happened here. And for all the notion that sanctions never really accomplish anything, which you could point to any number of crises where that has been proven true, clearly there has been uh, a, a tremendous effect here uh, with the collapse of the ruble. I mean, this is a thing where... And, and again, you know, Putin's going to say, and I, I, again, for, for all of the man's uh, evil actions, I don't know that it's necessarily untrue that it could be taken as an act of war. We have essentially dropped a WMD on their economy. We have yet to see it fully play out. Uh, but but the, the degree to which it might impoverish that country uh, going forward here, and uh, again, people who, in my estimation, are, are, are essentially just the man's hostages by and large. Not all, certainly there's the ones that work for him, but the ramifications of this on the Russian people and what has been necessary to do to try and get him uh, to back down on this. Talk about that, because this is, this is truly, truly unprecedented in the modern world or before. I mean, yeah, I think it's... Uh... I think it's a fabulous move. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Putin is, you know, and his cronies, well, Putin is not going to suffer. Uh, you know, he's perhaps one of the world's wealthiest men. He might be the world's wealthiest man. Uh, his, you know, his oligarch friends are probably not going to suffer either, even though their yachts or their jets might be taken away or their assets frozen in this country. It is so sad to me because the, the people who are, of course, going to suffer are, are the Russian people yes. who are, are, want probably want no part of this. Uh, and, and uh, you know, we saw the tip of the iceberg with some people out in the streets. I'm sure there's hun you know, tens of millions of more Russians who would like to protest you know, if they could. And, and, and I feel like they're going to be the ones to suffer. I mean... Um, you know, the ruble is collapsed. Um, you know, uh, uh, interest rates now in in Russia are twenty percent. You know, and and you know it's so interesting. They think, well, we'll we'll raise interest rates twenty percent to try to attract, you know, a capital to the country because you know, uh, you know, here treasuries are trading at like, you know, two two and a half percent. So if you can get twenty percent in Russia, you'd think that. You know that would attract capital to the country, but of course, no one is going to, you know, even at twenty percent interest rates, uh, or very few people are going to take the risk of investing uh, money uh, in Russia now for that kind of return because that's a default rate. That's more than a default rate. That's a, you know, a a near bankruptcy uh, rate of return or a uh, you know an equity, a high 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 risk equity type of return. So um, that's not going to work. Uh, you know, uh, you know, just, you know, essentially, banks uh, in Russia are going to be you know, disconnected from the SWIFT uh, system over time, uh, which will prevent them from moving money around internationally, which, you know, uh, ironically, uh, probably has led to uh, the 
increase in the price of Bitcoin uh, in the last few weeks. Uh, it's now up around uh, you know forty two thousand dollars of Bitcoin. It was sort of at thirty five thousand before all this started having come down from sixty eight thousand. And I think that a lot of uh, uh, Russian money is going into Bitcoin. Maybe even some Ukrainian money is going into Bitcoin uh, because that money um, with Bitcoin you. There's a ledger that will tell you who's doing what, but there's no way to stop. Well, there's no way that Bitcoiners and true believers, uh, uh, they believe that there's no way to uh, prevent that money from moving around the globe. I think I think the Justice Department has proven that it knows how to confiscate Bitcoin if it needs to or wants to. And just yesterday, the Justice Department announced a task force you know, the, the, whatever it is, cryptocracy task force uh, to, and, and we will seize uh, cryptocurrencies, uh, you know, uh, at will if it wants to or needs to. So I'm not sure that's going to uh, give the people who are investing in, in Bitcoin the kind of security they think they'll get that decentralized idea that they can move their money around as they're cut off from the international uh, money uh, movement system. Uh, so all of which is to say, you know, Americans are going to pay higher prices at the gas pump. Yes, I mean, you know, that's kind of the least uh, we can do to, to try to stop this situation uh, from metastasizing. Uh, Russian, ordinary Russians are going to pay a very heavy price. Uh, and, and hopefully enough of a price that, that they say, you know, the hell with this guy and what he's doing and, and somehow organize some sort of coup or, or something to get rid of the guy. I mean, I think that's part of the very clever strategy that, that uh, the U.S., the EU and the U.K. are, are undertaking. I mean, this is, you know, uh, it, it, it risks, you know, we're in a very tough position because obviously um because of nato we don't want you know if if putin you know takes that step and and enters a nato country then we're obligated to defend that country right. that means that probably does mean world war three uh in the interim we're not putting troops in in ukraine and they've asked for lethal weaponry which we probably should supply they've asked for no fly zone, which is, of course, very difficult to implement, maybe a partial no-fly zone over the western part of the country, because you don't want to get into a confrontation with Russia where you're shooting down their, their fighters. Uh, and I think aside from those things, which are very dangerous steps, I think this sort of financial vice that we've got them in could prove to be very effective in getting the Russian people to say, the hell with this guy. That clearly is what uh, so many people are hoping for uh, at this particular moment. I, I have to ask you also here in, in terms of this, because you you, you referenced uh, you know the potential for World War III here. This is a moment, as I'd said before, I think in many ways reminiscent of the Cuban uh, Missile Crisis in terms of the amount of tension involved. Not since 11 years after that, the Yom Kippur War, this is the first time that one of the countries visibly went to uh, an advanced uh, state of nuclear alert, as uh, Nixon did with uh, American forces during the Yom Kippur War in the fall of 73. 
And uh, again, the notion right now of having social media involved in this, you know, you look at it over a period of time, people thought with the Vietnam War, oh, this is different than World War II because we're seeing it on the evening news. It's immediate. And then during the Gulf War, it felt more immediate still. There's Bernard Shaw and everyone in Baghdad as the initial bombs are flying. And we see now with social media, you know, you ain't seen nothing yet in terms of immediacy, in terms of how many times per day the narrative can change on what's really happened. The narrative can pivot on a dime as far as who's got the upper hand. Look at what happened here, what happened there. And it, it seems to me that there's a duality to this. And I want to get your thoughts on this as far as so many of the awful things in history where if the eyes of the world were on it, they wouldn't have happened, whether it be the Holocaust, any of the Soviet slash Chinese uh, you know, famines slash massacres back during the communist days, Pol Pot in Cambodia. With the eyes of the world on, it seems to me none of these things could have happened. And yet, if social media had been around at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, maybe none of us would be here today because maybe it just would have kept inflaming tensions past that point. So to me, social media, which you're on, I'm on, and, and anybody else that has a voice in this thing, we're all on there and reading and commenting and everything like this. Vox Populi, it's a huge part of this story, and I'm really fascinated to get your thoughts on how this is interjecting into the whole situation, the whole landscape of what we're dealing with here. I mean, we'll just have to see whether you're right that the eyes of the world on, on these atrocities will somehow bring it to a quicker uh, resolution. Um, and again, I think this direct pipeline between the Pentagon and the equivalent in, in Russia uh, is probably designed to, you know, avoid any misreading of any, uh, you know, mishap or anything on social media that may trigger something we don't want to, to, to trigger. Uh, you know, uh, it, you know, it could, it could be that we uh, see, uh, you know, literally as it's happening, uh, you know, I feel for the life of, you know, the Ukrainian leadership, uh, you know, they've been very active on social media, very effective, uh, quite brilliant uh, and inspiring. But I also fear that we may be, uh, you know, watching in, in real time on social media, you know, when, you know, the Russian secret troops, their equivalent of the Mossad or whatever, whoever those people are, um, you know, finds where this bunker is and wipes, wipes them out. I mean, uh, you know, th there's been uh, plenty of gory details, you know, already from whether it be the, the, guy, the guy smoking the cigarette, bringing the land, walking with the landmine, uh, you know, it looked like 200 yards. Mm -hmm. That was incredible to Delinsky's, you know, uh, inspiring speeches from his bunker. And, I mean, uh, you know, and the people in the, uh, in the, in the Kiev subway, living i mean it, it's it's i mean it's obviously bringing uh a lot of global condemnation and it's probably exacerbating the isolation that the, the russians are going to feel but again i, I don't think putin uh, you know he had this 90-minute conversation with president macron today uh france who came out of it saying you know the worst is yet to come i mean what was that conversation like such that out of it, Macron is saying the worst is yet to come. I mean, I would think that that would be like a conversation where they might say, uh, like, uh, 
you know, we're going to try to do X, Y, and Z and, you know, keep things from getting out of hand and try to have a resolution here. Uh, uh, but no, what came out of that conversation was Macron's belief that the worst is yet to come. I can't imagine what uh, Putin said in that conversation. Well, he's probably talking about the kind of things that so many of us are fearful of. And uh, like I said, you know, I... I am fearful that uh, some of the brinksmanship here, again, I think that there's going to be a lot worse civilian casualties in Ukraine. Our hearts are going to be just absolutely rendered watching this play out. And yet, it is sort of a global hostage situation when you have a nuclear power there. And it's not like we can go just do an airstrike on the convoy that they have outside of Kiev without uh, potentially risking World War III. So it's a very, very complex uh, dynamic here. I do want to, before we go, I want to ask you about something here, and this is in light of you, you bring up about uh, Trump before and everything about the Trump movement. Uh, as somebody who has been a biographer of JFK Jr., I'm wondering what you think he might make of this. I mean, there's a strain in the Kennedy family going back over a period of time, a capacity for dark humor. So the notion that JFK Jr. has been embraced by the QAnon types now, uh, he's, he faked his death, He's out there. Uh, there. There was a thing. People were gathering at Dealey Plaza because they thought he was going to come back one day, uh, I think, in the last couple of months here. I mean, is there even a tiny part of him that were he watching now might have a chuckle like, you got to be kidding me? Or would he just be flat out appalled at the way that he's been appropriated by these people? Well, not only was I, I mean, quote, unquote, biographer of him, I yes. included him in a, a book called Four Friends, about four of my friends from high school who died young and tragically. And yes. One of them, uh, he, he was my friend uh, mm -hmm. from high school. So, um, and, and uh, I did a lot of, you know, reporting for that book. And uh, one thing that uh, uh, his friends and my friends and I, we sort of came to the conclusion that actually, uh, JFK Jr. had he not died, and this is a guy with extraordinary uh, levels of charisma, that, mm -hmm. you know, just once in a generation, you know, Obama-like levels of charisma, uh, maybe even more. Uh, 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 there were many of us who thought that he would have uh, uh, run for governor uh, of New York in 2002, assuming he would have, you know, uh, won uh that you know in 14 years later you know 14 years later could easily have been um the democratic nominee uh for president rather than hillary clinton against donald trump uh with with him winning so so in effect we could be in jfk jr's second term uh now mm. uh and um uh you know well you know, so that's one thing we would have avoided uh, the whole embarrassment of the four Trump years, uh, the ramifications of which we are obviously still dealing with incredibly uh, and sadly and pathetically, uh, especially uh, you know, with the uh, Republican Party that just seems to be enthralled to this guy in, in ways like I've never seen in my lifetime, even more than Reagan. I mean, who? I mean, no one was afraid of of, of quote unquote crossing Reagan. I mean, you see, I mean, what ninety percent of Republican politicians are scared to death of crossing Donald Trump, who's an a, a, a ex president, completely, uh, you know, who should be imprisoned based on his behavior 
so many times, not just January 6th, that's just one example. Uh, and, and why the Republican Party can't jettison this guy, once and for all, I find deeply uh, uh, fascinating and, and, and pathetic and bizarre. Uh, so, you know, how JFK Jr. might have dealt with this situation, I don't think, I think just, you know, you never know, but I think just just like if Al Gore had become president instead of George W. Bush, I mean, I just think, you know, presidents matter. Who, who gets elected really, really matters. Uh, and and so, uh, you know, there's just no way of knowing uh, whether we'd even be in this situation in, in the sixth year of a JFK Jr. Uh, presidency. Uh my guess is I doubt we would uh, be, uh, you know, I doubt we would have, um, uh, uh, you know, we might've faced uh, 9-11 under uh, Al Gore, but I, I really don't think we would have spent 20 years in Afghanistan and, you know, whatever it was, eight, 10 years in Iraq. Uh, I just don't see those things uh, happening, but they, they might've, who knows? I, you know, uh, I think our country was uh, uh, set back uh, in just a tremendous uh, number of ways that we have not really come fully to grips with uh, under the presidency of Donald Trump. And, and the thought that this guy might actually come back uh, in, in, two, in 2024 is completely mind-blowing to me. But here we are. And that is a very real possibility, as you say. The one thing I can say here is that uh, whether that happens or doesn't happen, I know that this new Puck News venture will be all over the story, as has been the case with uh, the Ukraine invasion and everything like that. So uh, before we wrap here, just take a second and things that people should know about this venture. You know, as I see on TV, uh, you know, Julia Ioffe, the great uh, Russia correspondent, I, I've seen her on there representing the banner for it during all of this. You have a very, very talented team there. And, you know, talk about what you're trying to do as far as covering the news from, from the perspective that you carry. Well, I, I mean, I, I, I agree with you, you know, myself aside. I think we have a very talented, extraordinarily talented, small group of, of writers and editors. Uh, we're, we're, you know, being uh, careful to uh, expand uh, slowly and uh, with great quality. Um, you know, we all own equity, uh, which is, you know, uh, incredible as a former uh, investment banker, uh, who had been a journalist where I was getting paid literally uh, slave wages uh, and had no capacity to do anything about it, uh, uh, to be uh, paid well and to have equity to boot um, is uh, finally serious progress uh, for content providers and, and people of the quality that have been assembled here. And so uh, not only is it uh, Julia, you know, I ought be, but it's, uh, People like uh, Matt Baloney covering Hollywood and Dylan Byers covering the media and Tina Nguyen covering, uh, uh, you know, the crazy off-the-wall Republicans and Teddy Schleifer calling, you know, covering, you know, the billionaire philanthropy class and I'm covering, you know, Wall Street, obviously, um, you know, uh, and across m very uh different groups of mediums, uh, media, whether it's podcasts or TV or radio or, uh, or you know, intimate dinners, uh, sessions with subscribers. So it's a 
it's an effort to try to do things a little differently. We're obviously not, not covering news on a daily basis, but we're reflecting on what we see and uh, using our sources and connections to break news if, if possible. And I think it's kind of a thrilling uh, place to be right now. I mean, I spent 13 years of Vanity Fair, uh, many of which were with Graydon Carter, which was a privilege and an honor. Uh, but, you know, those days are over. And I think this is sort of the new thing. And uh, it's, you know, kind of exciting to be part of it and see where it goes. Yes, it's a very uh, fascinating venture. And as you say, a lot of uh, strong perspectives being brought to bear for this thing. Definitely worth keeping an eye on. And uh, again, I want to thank you uh, very, very much, William. You've done us the honor of another great conversation here on the show. And uh, assuming that uh, we aren't staring down the barrel of nuclear Armageddon when we reach the other side of this thing here, I look forward to having you back again. But thank you so much again for your time. Okay. Be well. Be safe, everyone. Thank you. You thank too. You. Really appreciate it, William. Thank you, and thank you, everybody, for joining us for FDH Lounge Mini Episode 1453.